you for listening to this podcasted message from the Garden Fellowship. The Garden Fellowship is a new and exciting church located in Burlington, North Carolina. And we invite you to learn more about our church by visiting our Facebook page at facebook.com forward slash Garden Fellowship or by visiting our website at gardenfellowship.org. Now, we invite you to worship God through the teaching of His Word. So the story of Zacchaeus and Jesus coming to town and climbing a tree to see Jesus. Luke 19 is where we are. We'll read through the first 10 verses is where the story takes place. We'll read through those 10 verses together. And as we read through these, let me just encourage you to be mindful and be looking for the, the sovereignty of God. Be looking for and aware of how sovereign Jesus Christ is over this whole situation that takes place. Uh, be looking for Jesus' mission and be looking for the evidence, the <clears throat> description of a true and genuine conversion of a lost sinner. So Luke chapter 19, verses 1 through 10, beginning from verse 1. He, that is Jesus, entered Jericho and was passing through. And there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not, because he was small of stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a, of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Pray with me before we begin unpacking this. Lord, we pray for your guidance, your assistance, your divine direction in our minds and in our words that are spoken and heard in our hearts that receive. We pray, Lord, that you would open our hearts to the message that you bring to us through this man, Zacchaeus, and his encounter with Jesus Christ. I pray, Lord, that uh, minds, both young and old, would be attuned to the truth of the gospel found in this passage. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Amen. This is the final picture of Jesus's ministry that Luke wants to paint for us. If you notice, of course, this is the story of Zacchaeus, and it's going to revolve to some degree around money and what he's going to do with his money. And if you look down to the next passage, you'll see that that is a parable about nothing less than money. So clearly Luke has put these two sections together because the teaching of the parable uh, money that is to follow that's going to teach us that we who have truly genuinely converted hearts we will treat God's earthly resources in a different way we will hold on to them in a different way and use them differently than those who do not have converted hearts 
That ties in perfectly, of course, with the story of Zacchaeus and the conversion that comes into his heart and what he then does with his money. So this is all, all this together, chapter 19, is the final picture of Jesus' ministry. Because if you look at chapter 20, chapter 20 means that Jesus is in Jerusalem. And in a real sense, Jesus' ministry is now over because in Jerusalem, everything is now focused on one thing. He's going to tell some parables. He's going to have some encounters with the, with the chief priests and the religious rulers. He's going to be arrested, go on trial, be crucified, rise again. All of that is going to start occurring in chapter 20. So chapter 19 is really, in a sense, the end of Jesus' traveling ministry. And so Luke wants us to see the final picture of that is this story of a genuine true conversion and what that then means for those who are converted and how they view and treat God's earthly resources. So let's unpack this verse by verse as we begin from verse 1. Jesus entered Jericho. You remember previously at the end of chapter 18, the, the story of blind Bartimaeus. That, Luke, Luke has that occurring as Jesus is approaching Jericho. So now blind Bartimaeus is following Jesus. He's now part of this great crowd that's entering into Jericho with, with Jesus. He enters into Jericho. So just a word or two about the city of Jericho before we begin. That'll have a little bit of impact on our understanding of the passage. Jericho, <clears throat> we remember Jericho, of course, from the Old Testament. What happens to Jericho in the Old Testament? Anybody know? They march around it and the walls fall down and, and the Israelites take the city. This is the same Jericho in a sense. Jericho was destroyed, but it was rebuilt not on the same site. It was rebuilt a little uh, away from that site, but it is the same city, kept the same name. Um, and it is a walled city like the old city of Jericho. But the old ruins of Jericho are a little bit down the way from this Jericho. So Jesus enters into this Jericho. And something to know about this town is that you, you probably heard about the treacherous roads leading through Jericho from Jerusalem and the boulders and the rocks and how that makes such a great place for robbers and bandits to attack people. Well, one of the reasons that that took place was, of course, it was, in fact, a good place to rob people and surprise people and mug them. But also, one of the reasons that, there, that, that it was known for such crime was because Jericho was such an affluent place. It was a very international sort of city. It was a multi-ethnic sort of city. And the reason for that and the reason for its wealth was because it sat at the perfect crossroads for this section of the ancient world. It sat at the crossroads of the road that would lead uh, north to Damascus and then Tyre and Sidon, some great uh, wealthy trading ports there. Um, to, the, uh, to the east would be the road to Jerusalem and then on to Caesarea and Joppa. Uh, to the west would be the road to the Mediterranean Sea, so lots of trading and ports there. And then to the south was the road to Egypt. So it sat at the crossroads of a lot of wealthy travel and trade that took place. So that made the city to be a very international sort of place, uh, multi-ethnic sort of place. It also caused the city to be a place of great wealth. And because there was a lot of trade, travelers coming in and out, that led to a lot of crime. So this was the city of Jericho in which Jesus was approaching, a wealthy sort of place, uh, the sort of place in which Jesus is going to encounter uh, lots of Jews, but then lots of non-Jews as well. So he enters into Jericho, and he was passing through, and there was a man named Zacchaeus. Now in our scriptures, we have stories of conversion encounters in which we're told the name of the person converted, and we also have conversion stories of uh, people who are converted that were not told the name of who was converted. 
Um, in those instances in which we're told the name of the person who believes upon Jesus and then follows Jesus, scholars tell us that the likely reason that we're told their name is because the readers of the gospel would have known these people. So last week, or, or two weeks ago, we talked about blind Bartimaeus. And, and Mark includes Bartimaeus' name because we believe it's likely that the readers, the first readers of the Gospel of Mark, would have known Bartimaeus, and they would have uh, connected with him in that way. <clears throat> Luke includes the name of Zacchaeus. By the way, this is the only place that the story of Zacchaeus shows up. Matthew, Mark, and John do not include this story, but it is unique to Luke. And Luke includes his name, and there's two reasons why we think that Luke includes his name. One's going to be very obvious, and the other has to do with what we just said, that it is likely that the readers of Luke's gospel would have known Zacchaeus and related to him and resonated with that. Oh, this is Zacchaeus. We know Zacchaeus. Here's his conversion story. So we believe that that's likely the reason that Luke includes his name, but we can go a little bit further within that because we have some church history that we can add to this. Now, this is uh, church history. This is not the inspired scriptures, so we, we know this to not be inerrant. But at the same time, there was an ancient father of the church named uh, by the name of Clement of Alex Alexandria. He was a, an ancient father. He was a bishop of Alexandria. He writes to us that this man Zacchaeus goes on to be the pastor of the church at Caesarea. And an interesting note is that uh, Zacchaeus, Pastor Zacchaeus, again, that's not coming to us from the Word of God, but it's coming from church history. He was then succeeded by Pastor, and you'll get this name, Cornelius. Cornelius the Centurion from Acts chapter 10 goes on to also be a pastor. Clement of Alexandria tells us that Zacchaeus and then later Cornelius pastored the church at Caesarea. So a little bit of interesting note. Luke is writing to a Gentile audience. Caesarea was full of Gentiles, and so it's likely that Luke includes Zacchaeus' name because the people in Caesarea and the surrounding area of Caesarea would have, would have recognized, oh, that's Pastor Zacchaeus. We know him. Here's his conversion story. So an interesting note here. We have his name, Zacchaeus, and we'll see a little bit later another reason why we have his name. But uh, there was a man there named Zacchaeus. Now, Zacchaeus was a chief tax collector. If you've been tracking along with Luke so far, then you know <clears throat> this is not the first time that we have encountered tax collectors in Luke's gospel. Um, it's not the first time, it's not the second time, it's not the third time, it's not the fourth time, and it's not the fifth time. In fact, this is the sixth tax collector in Luke's gospel. Six tax collectors. Out of all six tax collectors that we meet in Luke's gospel, anybody want to take a guess how many of them are portrayed in a spiritually positive way? Two. At first or in general? Well, the, the whole of the portrayal. Spiritually positive or spiritually negative? negative? Really? All of them are portrayed in a spiritually positive way. By that I mean that, that they are believers. As Zacchaeus is going to be, as chapter 18, remember the tax collector who prayed, and his prayer was a genuine prayer. Or Matthew, who is the tax collector who's called to follow Jesus, and he does. So all of Luke's accounts of tax collectors, all six of them, are given to us in a spiritually affirming way. Or spiritually, maybe I phrased the question a little bit uh, in a confusing manner, but they're all, they're all shown to us in a spiritually affirming kind of way. So this is the sixth tax collector that we meet. 
And in many ways, this is the apex of the tax collectors. This is the climax. This is the ultimate tax collector. So ironically, or perhaps not ironically, he is the chief tax collector. The chief tax collector story is the chief tax collector. Everything's sort of built up to Zacchaeus. In fact, I'll go a little bit further and say that everything from chapter 1 has built up to this encounter with Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus, the story of Zacchaeus, in a, in a sense, is the climax of Jesus' earthly ministry, of course, prior to the cross. You know, oftentimes we have those passages of Scripture that we like to, to point to and say that's like a little uh, microcosm of the gospel, a little compact version of the gospel. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever would believe in Him should not perish but have eternal life. Or, or Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. Little microcosms of the gospel that we could say, look, this doesn't have every nook and cranny of what we are to know, but the foundation is here. The, the basis of the entire gospel is here. In Luke's gospel, this is it. The story of Zacchaeus is the entire foundation of the gospel. Everything is here. Everything that we need to know to see and to realize and be uh, converted and repent and receive um, salvation from Christ. Everything is here in the story of Zacchaeus. And he is the ultimate story of a tax collector, one who is shunned and scorned and hated and spurned. And ironically, he's the chief tax collector, chief of the tax collector stories as well. So as a tax collector, Luke goes on to tell us that he was rich. So just to remind yourself briefly of how tax collection took place in the Roman Empire. Tax collectors would uh, bid for the franchise of collecting tax in a certain area. And Rome would award those tax collecting franchises to the highest bidder. So uh, someone would bid and they would say, I believe in this area I can collect this amount of tax. And if you were the high bidder and you were awarded that tax collecting contract, you then owed Rome that much money. But then whatever you were able to collect above that, that was what you profited. So the entire system itself was built upon corruption. Corruption was the foundation of it. Our taxing, taxation system, we may not like it. It may be broken in a lot of ways, but it's not built upon the idea of corruption. This was a tax system that in order for people to be motivated to be tax collectors, they had to be open to corruption and, and uh, unfairness and illegality. So this was the area in which Zacchaeus worked. He was a tax collector, and he was a tax collector in a wealthy place. Much of the taxes were collected upon travelers. Uh, there was a type of income tax in this day, but it was a, a minor sort of thing. The, the bulk of the taxes that were collected were collected from people that were traveling. They were easy to track. They were easy to spot. You set up your tax booths on the roads. And you collected taxes from people that passed by. You would tax the number of animals they were bringing. You would tax the, the carts that they were bringing. Or you would tax the goods that they had on the cart. Or you would tax the people that were coming and going. You could tax all kinds of ways. But travelers were the easiest way to tax people. And so Jericho was a city that had a lot of travelers. Four 
highly traveled roads come in and out of Jericho. There was a lot of taxation that took place in Jericho. And also, keep in mind that these are wealthy people in general that are traveling. So if you were traveling to or from Jericho, you had two dangers. One was the robbers that you were likely to encounter before you got there. And then were the robbers that were the legal robbers once you got there. So this was the city of Jericho. Zacchaeus engaged in this type of activity. And not only did he do this and, and get wealthy from his business of tax collection, but he also got wealthy from the, Ill the illegal parts of his tax collection because all tax collectors in this day were widely known to be corrupt and to collect more taxes than were necessary. But then even beyond that, he was the chief tax collector, which also meant that not only did he get revenue from his tax collection and his illegal activity, but he also got a little bit of the revenue from the other tax collectors in the area as well because he would get a sort of a portion of what they collected as well. He was a very powerful and a very wealthy man. So this is this man Zacchaeus. By the way, his name, anybody want to take a guess what his name means? It'd just be a stab in the dark. Zacchaeus means innocent and clean, pure. Uh, his parents sort of missed the mark a little bit. Though. You ever know somebody that just doesn't quite live up to their name? That would be Zacchaeus, at least so far. So there was this man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. And get this, he was seeking to see who Jesus was. You can't miss that. You can't miss that. Because we just looked at Bartimaeus, who wanted to see Jesus, but he couldn't because he was blind. That comes right after the story of the children who want to see Jesus, but they can't because the adults keep them away. Three stories right here in a row, those who want to see Jesus and things are keeping them from Jesus. And in each instance, Jesus overcomes those things to bring these people to it. He, he overcomes the adults who want to keep the children away. Bring the children to me. Or the, uh, uh, the story, of course, blind Bartimaeus. He wants to see Jesus. He can't see Jesus because his eyes don't work. Jesus heals his eyes. He sees Jesus and then follows Jesus. Followed by the story of Zacchaeus, who wants to see Jesus, but he can't because he's short of stature in the crowd. It's this tremendous crowd. He knows Jesus is coming. He wants to see him, but he can't. So we'll get to that in just a moment. But we see the connection between the three of those things. It's it's almost impossible to miss. Zacchaeus has something in his heart that is drawing him to this man, Jesus. He's likely heard about Jesus. Uh, he, he possibly heard about this guy, Lazarus, that Jesus just recently raised from the dead just down the road in Bethany. He's likely heard that people are, are calling Jesus the Messiah, the Christ, the one who was to come. And Zacchaeus is wealthy and powerful but his life is missing something, and he knows it. He knows that there is this deep dissatisfaction in his life. He doesn't quite know what it is or what he's seeking, but something about this man, Jesus, that he's heard about, he is compelled to go and see Jesus. This is not just curiosity. We'll see from the story how Zacchaeus uh, acts throughout the story. This is not just curiosity. This is something much deeper. He is being compelled to come and see Jesus. He can't see Jesus because of the crowd, but we're going to see how that will be overcome. So he's seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not. 
because he was small of stature or he was short. Verse 4, so he ran on ahead. Now, here we see the beginning of Zacchaeus's complete abandon of his dignity. If you think back to Luke chapter 15, remember the story of the prodigal son and the father who runs. His son is coming home and he, the father runs to get to the son before the villagers because here is a man returning back who has disgraced the entire village and he's a fatherless person. So they are going to converge on him, but the father runs to get to him first to wrap his arms around him, declare him his son, and absorb the, the indignity that was due to the son. But we talked about what a disgrace it was considered for men of this culture to run. And the reason it was a disgrace was because they considered it disgraceful for a, men, a man's legs to be seen, to show. In fact, the robe that a man wears was literally, uh, was literally called that which covers my shame, or that which covers my disgrace. So this father runs, showing his legs, showing his indignity in order to cover the son. Here Zacchaeus does the same thing. Throwing dignity and pride aside, he runs. He sees where the crowd is going. Remember, this is a tremendous crowd. Not only are all these people following Jesus, who are his disciples, or curious to know about him, but also it's the Passover. and Everybody's making their way towards Jerusalem for the Passover. So this huge crowd is coming. And Zacchaeus sees it. He wants to see Jesus. He can't see Jesus, but he sees where the crowd is going. He looks ahead. He sees this tree, and he gets an idea. He runs to the tree. Um, he gets to the tree, uh, and he climbs into this sycamore tree, not like our North American sycamore tree, but something more like a, a, a mulberry tree uh, or an oak tree, perhaps. Um, low branches, easy sort of tree to climb. Zacchaeus would have needed an easy tree to climb. So he runs ahead, he climbs into this sycamore tree. Now, if it was disgraceful for a man to show their legs while running, think of how disgraceful it would be for a man to show his legs while climbing a tree. Zacchaeus has completely abandoned his pride. He's completely abandoned his um, dignity. And he will do whatever he has to do to see Jesus. So he climbs into the tree for Jesus was about to pass that way. So now here's this man Zacchaeus, wealthy, powerful within the town of, of Jericho, but he is missing something major in his life. And he knows it. And he hears about this man whose reputation is bigger than life. He is known to uh, have power over the weather He's known to have power over demons. He's known to cleanse lepers, heal the sick. He has even been known to raise the dead. He's got a reputation that is larger than life. He's heard about this man, Jesus, and he's compelled to see him for some reason by chance. He's coming through Jericho. By chance, Zacchaeus sees the crowd. And maybe if I climb the right tree, maybe I can get a glimpse of him. Put yourself in that frame of mind. So now, <clears throat> when Jesus, verse 5, when Jesus came to the place, he looked straight at him and said, hey, you in the tree, come on down. Is that what he says? Yes. Zach. 
Here's a man larger than life. For some reason, Zacchaeus has got to see him. And he, by chance, catches a glimpse of him from a tree. And Jesus walks straight to the tree, looks right at him, and speaks his name. Zacchaeus, hurry and come down. I don't think he had to say hurry. In fact, it's, it's probably somewhat amazing that Zacchaeus didn't take the fast way down the tree you know, the, the, without using any branches to get down. Just falling. Because here is this man, Jesus, who is not just looking right at him, knows his name. That would in itself have distinguished Jesus as a prophet because that's what people in these days expected prophets to be like. They expected prophets to know things that otherwise they couldn't have known. Remember John chapter 1 and how Jesus encounters Nathaniel there. You remember um, he says to Nathaniel, um, I saw you under the fig tree. And Nathaniel says, you saw me? Surely you are the one that we've been waiting for because Jesus had this knowledge of Nathaniel that he shouldn't have had. And so he sees him, therefore, as at least a prophet. Or John chapter 4, you remember the woman at the well. And Jesus says to the woman, go and get your husband. I don't have a, a husband. Oh, you got that right because you have had five husbands and the one that you live with now is not even your husband. And what is her response? Sir, I perceive you to be a prophet because that's what prophets did. Prophets knew what you couldn't otherwise know. So it, he, at the very minimum now, has, dis, has established himself as being a prophet of God. Zacchaeus, hurry and come down. Now get this. For I, what's that word? For I, yeah, we do have a Bible open right? Must. Does anybody say must or, or have to or something like that? For I must stay at your house. This is, this is something that Greek scholars will tell us. Um, it's called the divine necessity. And it's something that shows up in the Greek language throughout the Gospels and throughout, in fact, the epistles as well. Um, it's transliterated as D-E-I, day. But what it means is it, it carries this meaning of divine necessity or uh, it is necessary that this thing happens. It is beyond debate that this thing happens. It is. It has to be that this is what happens. So Jesus looks right at him. Zacchaeus, come on down, hurry up, for it is necessary that I stay at your house. You see the sovereignty of God over this whole situation. This encounter with Zacchaeus and Jesus, it is not this random sort of encounter in a crowd. God has planted a sycamore tree 60 years ago that would grow in this spot so that Zacchaeus could climb it and meet Jesus on this day in this spot. Mm -hmm. It is necessary that this happens today, Zacchaeus. So hurry up and come down because it is necessary that I stay at your house. That word stay literally is translated from a word that literally means to loose one's clothing. So Jesus isn't going just to spend an hour and eat a meal. 
He's going to sleep. He's going there to, to stay the night at Zacchaeus' place. Now, in our culture today, it's considered rude to invite yourself over to other people's house. Happens from time to time after church. Uh, probably lots of kids here. You know, same thing happens with ours. They'll come and they'll say, hey, we were just invited to so-and-so's house. Were you invited or did you invite yourself? Because it's considered rude to invite ourselves over to other people's house. Well, in Jesus' culture, it was the same thing. It was also considered rude to invite yourself to someone else's house. But Jesus is not worried about cultural parameters here. He's not worried about cultural etiquette or being polite. It is necessary, Zacchaeus, for me to come and stay at your house. Why? Because this was appointed before that sycamore tree was created. This was appointed before this world was created that I would go to your house today. So, uh, verse 8, so he hurried and came down. I'm reminded there of the previous story, Blind Bartimaeus. Uh, you may remember that in uh, Mark's account of the conversion of Bartimaeus, Mark says that Jesus called to Bartimaeus. Bartimaeus threw down his cloak and ran to Jesus. Zacchaeus does the same thing. He hurries and he runs to Jesus. This is the response of a converted person. This is a response of a person who is responding to Holy Spirit in their heart, acting upon their desires and acting upon their hearts, is there is no keeping them away from Jesus. Oftentimes, and I know we've all been there in these you know, situations where you have a, a lost friend or acquaintance or family member and you encourage and you ask and please come to church with me. I'll, I'll think about it. Okay, yeah, I'll plan to come Sunday and then they don't. Okay, well, I'll plan to come next Sunday and, and they don't. This is the response of a person that Holy Spirit is working in their heart. You can't keep them from Jesus. This past week I was meeting with... Uh, uh, an individual in a counseling situation and um, this individual is talking with me about some issues, problems in their life. One of the things is that, uh, of course, there's lots of marital marital problems and his wife uh, uh, has never been to church since he's known her. As far as he knows, she's never been to church in her life. But yet, um, here's the question that this person asked me. Do you think my wife is saved? And it's like, what planet are you on? Those who belong to Christ Jesus, you can't keep them away from Jesus. It's not a matter of, all oh, been busy for the last 14 years, and one day I'll get around to coming to church. Or it's not a matter of, oh, I don't like that church because of this, or I don't like that church because of, of the pastor or the singing over there, or that was located too far from my house. If we belong to Jesus Christ, there is no keeping us away from Him and from His people. So He runs he hurries down and he runs to Jesus and he receives him joyfully. Probably, I would say, the first true joy in Zacchaeus' life. Surely he's been happy. His wealth has bought him lots of nice things and lots of good pleasures. But this is the first time he's experienced true joy. So he receives him joyfully. Verse 7, And when they saw it, they all rejoiced at the grace and mercy of God. They grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who was a sinner. Now, I take it from verse 7 to verse 8, my understanding is that some time passes. 
between those two verses. It seems to me that that should probably start a new paragraph, maybe. Because we're going to see real quickly that Zacchaeus is going to stand up and say some things to Jesus. So it doesn't make sense that Zacchaeus is sitting down in the middle of the crowd. It seems like the scene has changed places. They're now at Zacchaeus' house. They have shared a meal or in the process of sharing a meal, whatever the case may be. But it seems like some significant amount of time has passed between verse 7 and verse 8. And in verse 8, we are going to begin seeing a completely converted human being. And the first thing that we should notice about um, this is what takes place, what is narrated to us between verse 7 and 8. What does it say between verse 7 and 8? Nothing. Verse 7, Zacchaeus is being grumbled and complained about. He's just come into Jesus' presence. Jesus presence. Verse 8 begins the narration of Zacchaeus's true conversion. And Luke doesn't tell us anything about what Jesus says, about what Zacchaeus asks him about. It doesn't tell us anything about the conversation that takes place between Jesus and Zacchaeus. Certainly there was lots of conversation. But Luke tells us none of that. Perhaps I think the reason for that is that we're not intended to focus on what Jesus said or what Zacchaeus asks as though, okay, these are the right questions to ask Jesus. These are the right things to say. All that sure is important. I think what Luke wants us to see is it's not a matter of what Zacchaeus asked about or what they talked about. It's a matter of Jesus being there. Jesus is there now. And now salvation is there. And so by just sort of skipping over all of that, we see God is totally sovereign over this situation. Jesus is now here in Jericho. Jesus is now here in Zacchaeus' house. Now Zacchaeus is saved and he's following Jesus. So verse 8, Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord. Now that word stood uh, is, our English word is not strong enough for it. In English, the word stand can mean a couple of different things, can it? It can mean a, a position in which your weight is on your legs and on your feet. You know, you're not sitting, you're not kneeling, you're not lying down, you're standing. But in English, it can also be metaphorical, can it? It can mean that you take a stand, that you stood for something, right? The word that Luke uses only means that. It means that Zacchaeus thought it through, arrived at a conclusion, and, and took a firm stand upon that conclusion. It means that he gathered himself and he resolved that this was now who he was and the path that he was now taking. It's only a strong metaphorical sense of placing a flag in the ground of your life and saying, from this point forward, this is who I am. So he stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, notice, of course, what he calls Jesus, half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. So let's talk for just a minute about what he's going to do, where he gets that from, and then we'll flesh that out a little bit further. So um, half of my goods I'm going to give to the poor, and if I've defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. You can't help but remember the story that we just heard from chapter 18 about the rich young ruler who could not bring himself to part with his money. He liked the idea of Jesus. He liked the idea of following Jesus. Uh, he liked the idea of keeping the law. But separating from all of his money, that was just 
too far for him to go. Now, the whole point of that story, Jesus tells us, is that, you know, it's really, really hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. It's like a camel passing through the eye of a needle. And remember how we talked about that when we went through that passage? We said our culture, our cultural lens, the way that we would understand that would be that we would think that riches were a hindrance to salvation. Because riches would tempt us to trust in ourselves and trust in our riches instead of casting ourselves upon God. But the culture that Jesus spoke those words to and the culture that Jesus, uh, that Luke wrote that to would have understood it in the opposite way. They would have considered it not to be a disadvantage to salvation to be rich, but an advantage to salvation. Because salvation was about believing the scriptures and trusting God and confessing God, but it was also about giving alms to the poor. That was a huge component of salvation. And so therefore, if salvation entailed giving alms to the poor, those who had more capacity to give to the poor were in a much better place to be saved. So Jesus' point is, even those that you think have the advantage, even to them, if this is an impossible thing. And the disciples answered, well, if they can't be saved, who in the world can be? And Jesus' answer is, What's impossible for men is possible with God. So now we come to the story of Zacchaeus, another rich man, a rich man who has the advantage of riches, but he has the disadvantage that unlike the rich young ruler, he's not a good person. He's not a person that keeps the law and he's known to be a good Jew and goes to synagogue and flag. He's a tax collector that's unclean, perpetually unclean, can't even go to the synagogue. Remember the tax collector in chapter 18 who had to pray, Lord, let that atonement apply to me because I have to stand far off. He stood far off and said, I can't even go in there, but let that atonement apply to me. Zacchaeus is the same. He has the, perhaps the advantage of wealth, but he has the huge disadvantage that he's not even considered to be a good Jew. Zacchaeus now is an illustration of the impossibility that the rich young ruler showed us. The rich young ruler was a rich person who couldn't leave his riches and his wealth to follow Jesus. Zacchaeus is an illustration of all things are possible with God. So he says, half of my goods I give to the poor. If I've defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. So he gives half of his stuff to the poor. And the reason that I think that he only gives half is because I think it's probably going to take the other half to do the restoration that he talks about. I'm going to restore fourfold anyone that I've cheated. So where does he get fourfold? Well, if we were to look in Numbers chapter uh, six, I'm sorry, verse chapter five, number chapter Numbers chapter five, verse six and seven, we would see that God says to His people, "If you have sinned against anyone, and it costs them something material, by sinning against them, you've costed them something." Numbers 5 or 6 and 7 says you are to restore it plus one-fifth or 20%. So if you've sinned against someone, you restore it to them plus another 20% to cover what they may have lost. But then if we were to turn from there to Exodus chapter 22, we would look at verse 4 and verse 7. We would see there that the Word of God tells us that if we steal... From someone. So 
the crime has been elevated a little bit from, from just sinning against someone to stealing from someone. The Word of God says if you steal from someone, you are to restore it double. So we're still not quite to fourfold yet. But if we were to look in Exodus chapter 8, I'm, I'm sorry, Exodus 22 verse 1, we would see that God says if you steal from someone with violence, then you restore it fourfold. If you just sneak into somebody's house and take from them, you restore that double. If you mug them and you beat them up and take their property, you have to restore that fourfold. So here's what Zacchaeus does. He thinks through the word of God and he says, what is the maximum? What is the maximum? And he says, well, sure, I've sinned against people and I have stolen from them. But what if I considered that what I've done was not just stealing from them, but stealing violently? Yeah, that's what I'll do. I'll restore fourfold. There's nothing about what do I have to do? Uh, what's the least I can do and still be considered obedience? Uh, what's the minimum that God requires of me? What, what, what is the sort of the entry level? It's none of that. What is the maximum that God considers to be obedience? That's what I'll do. I remember, <clears throat> uh, to my shame, I remember uh, some years ago, we lived in Colorado. We owned a little condo there. We sold the condo. We were getting ready to move. We sold it for... Um, a little bit of a profit. And I remember thinking, okay, this profit from the sale of this property, I'm going to tie part of it to God. Uh, but then, you know, there's the question, whenever you sell a property, you sort of make a profit, but then there's some expenses that go along with that. I remember thinking, do I tithe based on the total profit or do I tithe based on the profit less the expenses that I incurred? And I remember asking a friend and then just saying, that's the wrong question. What a stupid question. What a stupid question. That's the wrong question to ask. You give God the maximum obedience because that is what converted people do. Zacchaeus thinks through God's law and says, well, I could restore 20%, and that's probably technically right. I could restore double, and that's certainly technically right. But you know what? I could go further, and I could restore fourfold. That is what converted people do. Converted people don't ask themselves, what do I have to do in order to please God? Converted people look at God's word and they say, what can I do? What does God's word show me will make him happy? That is what I will do. What Zacchaeus, or rather what the rich young ruler couldn't do, Zacchaeus does willingly and joyfully. Jesus doesn't appear to ask Zacchaeus to do this. Jesus doesn't appear to even put this suggestion into Zacchaeus' thought. Zacchaeus seems to be motivated and moved to do this on his own based on a genuine conversion that has come into his heart. And by the way, how long does it take Zacchaeus, the corrupt, wicked, sinful chief tax collector, how long does it take him to get his spiritual act together? Like an hour? Same day? How often do we see those who profess conversion years later still working on some of the most basic elements of following Jesus? Zacchaeus, within an hour, he's ready to stand, take his position and say, this is the way I will be from this point forward. Certainly Zacchaeus 
has lots of other things he needs to work through in his heart and in his life. Sure. Yes, we spend the rest of our life working out our salvation with fear and trembling. Philippians uh, 2 verse 12 tells us. But for the most part, Zacchaeus, at least on the outside, he knows how to straighten this out today. And he's going to do this today. So he stands and says, this is who I will be. This is what I will do. He does this joyfully. What the rich young ruler couldn't be coerced into doing, Zacchaeus does joyfully and willingly. You probably heard me use the analogy of the balloons. You know, if I give you a balloon and I say it's your job to keep this balloon off the ground, it makes a whole world of difference what that balloon is filled with, right? If I give you a balloon that I blew up with my mouth, Shepherd, and I say, keep this off the ground, then you're going to be pretty busy. But if I give you a balloon filled with helium, and I say, don't let this touch the ground, you've got an easy job. That's like the difference between the heart of the converted person and the heart of the unconverted person when they look to God's law. God's law, J.D. Greer uses this analogy, God's law is like a train on the tracks. You know, a train only goes where the tracks take it. So the tracks tell the train where to go, but the tracks don't take the train anywhere. It is the engine that takes the train, but the tracks show the train where to go. God's law is like the tracks, and the engine of the train is like the conversion and the joy that the Holy Spirit brings to us. It powers the obedience. The law shows us where to take it, but the power of that comes from the Holy Spirit dwelling within us. This is a picture of Zacchaeus, a truly converted person who now receives God's law joyfully. I restore it fourfold. Now, I wonder what the grumbling crowd was going to think of him now. Verse 9, And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. We'll end with that. That is Jesus' mission. Jesus did not come to be an example. Jesus did not come to be a good teacher. He didn't come to sort of set the religious world back on track. He didn't come uh, to <clears throat> straighten out some corruption within the Jewish system. Jesus came to seek lost sinners and save them. That was his mission. That was his purpose. That was his purpose from eternity past, before the world was created. God, in his divine mind, thought, I'm going to create a world, and I'm going to fill it with people that bear my image. And they're going to sin and fall into sin, and my eternal joy will come when I enter into their world and I find them, and I save them. There is no story that illustrates the pursuing God more clearly than Zacchaeus. And Jesus walks up to that tree and says, You, Zacchaeus, I'm here for you. This is why I came to Jericho. This is why I'm here on this earth for you, Zacchaeus. Because you are a lost sinner. And that's why I'm here, to seek you out and to save you. In the notes here that I see, uh, failed to pass around, they're all around here in the front, front row. Um, 
we've got some scriptures here to look through. And part of that is showing us that sometimes God's word shows us that God is the one who seeks man. For example, Exodus 34, I will seek the lost and I will bring back the stray. But then there's also some passages of Scripture that seem to imply that man is seeking God. Seek the Lord, Isaiah 55. Seek the Lord while He may be found. Call upon Him while He is near. Jeremiah 29, You will seek Me and find Me when you seek Me with your whole heart. And sometimes... That can be confusing. Is it us that seeks God or is it God that seeks us? Of course, Romans 3 verse 11, Paul tells us nobody seeks for God. Not one. None of us. We're all corrupt. None of us seek after God. But then the scriptures do speak of us seeking God and to do so with our whole heart. And the only resolution for that is to understand that any seeking we do of God is because he's already been seeking us. Like we read in 1 John chapter 4, verse 19. Why do we love God? Why do we love God? Because He first loved us. Why do we seek God? Because He first sought us. His seeking of us initiates our seeking of Him. We wouldn't seek Him unless He were seeking us. Zacchaeus climbs the tree because Jesus is on His way there. If Jesus weren't on His way there... Zacchaeus wouldn't have climbed the tree. In the same way, if God weren't seeking us, we never would have sought Him. Our seeking of Him is a response. Now I know that, that there is a real, genuine reality that when Holy Spirit starts convicting us and working in our heart, there's a wrestling through a lot of things. There's a thinking through and searching the Scriptures and wrestling with those truths. And sometimes we think of that as seeking God. But He is the one who seeks us. He is the great seeker. No other gospel shows that as clearly and as forcefully as Luke. Remember chapter 15? The lost coin that the woman will not give up until the coin is found. The lost sheep the shepherd will not give up until the sheep is found. And of course, the lost son. No other gospel shows us as clearly that Jesus Christ is the seeker and the saver of lost sinners. We hope you enjoyed this podcasted message from the Garden Fellowship. The purpose of the Garden Fellowship Church is to make disciples of Jesus Christ through loving God, loving each other, and loving our community. We hope you were blessed by this message. You can learn more about our church by visiting our Facebook page at facebook.com forward slash Garden Fellowship or by visiting our website at gardenfellowship.org.